Jesus is hightailing it out of the temple, running for his life. Because at the end of John chapter 8, the people in the temple have started to pick up massive stones to execute him by stoning. So Jesus escapes that scene on his way out of the temple. He comes to a man sitting by the side of the road who is there every day, a beggar. And this man was born blind. He has never seen any light at all for his entire life. And he is disenfranchised. His place in life in this society is absolutely frozen out. He will never be a contributor in this society. He will only be an object of pity. He will only receive the gifts that people see fit to give him as they walk by. As Jesus walks by, he says, I have an appointment with this man. I am here for a reason. And even though Jesus is fleeing for his life, he stops and addresses this man And he says, this man's life is going to exhibit something the Bible calls the glory of God. Think about that word glory. That's radiance. That's when the sun shines and it's blinding. And when you even look closely at it, your eyes are flooded with light. That's glory. Glory is big. Glory is impressive. Stops you in your tracks. And Jesus looks at this man, this beggar, an outsider in his society, and says, the glory of God is going to be exhibited right here with this man. And so he does it in an odd way, as we saw last week. He spits on the ground. He makes some mud with his spit takes the mud in his fingers, plasters the mud over the man's eyes without asking permission, and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man does, he comes back, and he can see. He is healed. That is the story that we are looking at this morning. And what we want to get our hands around this morning is the impact of Jesus' healing on this man. What it did in his life, and how, in many ways, it made his life worse. Because society, in Jesus' time, in the time of the writing of the Gospel of John, society then, in the first century, was exactly like it is now. You have a place that you fit And you stay there. If you try to get out of the place that you fit, if you try to escape the label that we put on you, if you try to do something outside of the norm for the place where you fit, we will put you back in your place. Because we tell you who you are. We control your identity. Society then is no different from society now. And one of the reasons I have 
asked us to pay attention to this story at this time is because I am hearing this more and more and more. I see something different from what everyone around me is saying about who I am, about what my life is for, about what I am supposed to do with it. I am seeing something bigger. I am seeing something of the glory of God, even though they may not know to put it this way. They say to me, I am seeing Jesus. He is calling me, and I don't know what to do because everyone else is telling me to stay put in my little box with my label securely fastened to my forehead. So we're going to look at this story from the point of view of not one, but two outsiders to this whole society of the first century. Jesus is the first outsider in this story. And uh, I'll just remind you that last week we talked about all the lengths to which John, as he writes his gospel, is showing the first century the ultimate outsider. He is actually showing, he's going out of his way and telling the story of the Jesus he knew and worked with. He's going out of his way to portray Jesus as an outsider to Jewish life. So where one part of the ancient world was going deeper and deeper into strict religious codes and deepening animosities between groups, factionalizing more and more, and raising the barriers between people. Where the the Jewish people under the leadership at that time were doing that, John is saying Jesus was not part of that. He was on the outside of that system because he wouldn't go along with the codes. Where another part of ancient society, the Gentiles, were saying, oh, those religious codes, all of that strictness, all of those barriers, all of that narrow thinking, we're outgrowing all of that. We're going to be so much more sophisticated than that. We are going to be bigger than that because human potential is greater than all of that narrow, backward religious thinking. And so, uh, one of the reasons John wrote his gospel was to confront something, a, a Greek philosophy that we called Gnosticism last week. And this is the idea that your body doesn't matter. The real you trapped inside your body is what matters. And so you need to transcend your body. You need to get over your limitations. You need to actually become... The, the great big spirit that you are and transcend all of that stuff and uh, overcome the limitations of your body. And so this was the rising cutting edge idea in John's time and John is saying Jesus doesn't fit that either. He's the light of the world but he cares about your body. He is the truth of God. He is the word of God. And he likes dirt. So take that. He is portraying Jesus as the ultimate outsider who doesn't fit any of the factions of his day. 
So we're looking at this from the point of view of a society that is splintering in so many different ways. You have exactly the same splinters in our society. You've got a narrowing of religion in many places where people are delving deeper and deeper into their animosity, their anger, their bitterness, and their suspicion of other people. And then you've got another trend that says, no, we've got to be cutting-edge sophisticated and we've got to outgrow all of that. And the Jesus of the Gospel of John is saying to us, I'm not either one. I'm an outsider to both. Follow me. So that's the first outsider in this passage. We're going to continue to unpack this as we go along. The second outsider is the blind man himself. This is a man who, as we said, is disenfranchised, frozen out from his culture. They have a box for him. It's a small box. It is clearly labeled, and he's going to stay there his whole life because he was born blind. And as the disciples indicate uh, at the beginning of chapter 9, it's probably somebody's fault. It was, maybe it was his fault. Maybe it was his parents' fault. But somebody sinned in order to bring this judgment upon this man. And so he's going to stay in the box. And Jesus basically says, no, this man is not going to stay in the box. I'm springing him out of there. I'm taking the label off. I am remaking this man's life. And he is not going to fit anymore. You don't have a box for this guy any longer because I'm springing him out of it. And so uh, Jesus heals him. And what we're going to see this morning is that though this blind man has seen Jesus at work, has experienced Jesus' power, he has had an amazing healing in his life that liberates him physically from his limitations. Though he has seen all of that, his problems are just beginning. He's in deep trouble. And what we're going to see this morning is that um, the political party, one of the political parties in charge, holds a hearing about this man. This is the nearest analogy that we would have to this. Uh, they, They gavel the hearing into session. We are going to do an inquiry into what happened with this man. We're going to figure out which box he belongs in now so that we can put him back in the box. Because we see the label kind of lost its sticky. So we've got to re-glue it. We've got to put it back. And that's what this hearing is for. So we're going to see the hearing begin. Then we're going to see the hearing get off track and start calling other witnesses in an effort to put the man back in the box. How I want you to look at this story is this. You are here for some reason because you have seen something about Jesus in your life. You have experienced something about him. And that or some combination of things has brought you here this morning. What I want you to see from the Word of God in John chapter 9 is that Jesus has an agenda that is big to break you out of the boxes of your life so that you become exactly the kind of display of the glory of God that this man born blind becomes in John chapter 9. 
So let's look at this. Let's start with the hearing. Verse 13. You get a little indication of the kind of atmosphere that's going on in Jerusalem in a time when religious and ethnic factional loyalty is highest and most important at that kind of time. There's fear. There's fear in our country right now because you have to line up with somebody, some party, some faction, some identity. You've got to fit the boxes and you've got to find your people and you've got to stick with them. And so what happens after this man is healed in Jerusalem is that all of the neighbors, family, friends, realize this man's been healed but he's been healed by Jesus, the outsider. This is a problem. Notice how a good thing turns into a problem in this chapter. It's very ironic. So in verse 13, we read this. They, family, friends, neighbors, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. We have a problem because this man no longer fits the boxes. He's not in the beggar box. He's not in the sinner box. He's, he's now not in the blind box because he can see. So help us. We don't want to do something wrong by putting him in the wrong box. So they bring him to the Pharisees. Pharisees and the Sadducees, you probably have heard this. They're the equivalent of Republicans and Democrats today. Um, You know how well that's going. (laughs) So here's here's a political circus in the making. You you just see this unfolding. Um, And there is an issue at the center of this. It's an issue of strict religious codes in which you show who you are by how you line up with the strict religious code. And if you don't line up, you are being disloyal to your people. So you got to get this right. You got to show the whole Gentile world out there that you are a Jewish person and that you are faithful to the law of Moses and that's who you are. And if you're not with us, then we are definitely not with you. So this is how this works. The issue is... The issue of the Sabbath day, verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. On a Sabbath day, according to the Ten Commandments, no one is to do any work. Now that raises the obvious question, what counts as work? And you know that this issue is a big one in the life of Jesus and that uh, various factions defined work differently depending upon uh, what, uh, what point of view they were coming from. So in the Pharisee faction, Jesus, by bending down, spitting on the ground, making mud, and putting it on the guy's eyes, and then having the audacity to heal the guy, did work. Okay, so that's one faction. What issue is this like today? This is like standing or sitting for the national anthem. The minute 
an issue like this comes up where your identity and your loyalty and your patriotism are at stake. Are you in or out? Are you with us or are you against us? Because that's the national anthem, that's the flag, and buddy, you'd better be standing up when that starts up. That's the kind of issue that the Sabbath day is. It's political, it's ethnic, it's about us versus them, not just about God. And so, how is this issue being used? This isn't uh, really an issue of Jesus uh, sitting down while the national anthem is being played. Jesus says, I love the the Sabbath. In fact, I made the Sabbath. Indeed, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Thank you very much. So he loves the Sabbath. It's not an issue of him sitting while the national anthem is being played. It's more like the, the trolls on Twitter are saying Jesus had the wrong look on his face while the national anthem was being played. Did you see that photo of him? He just didn't look like he was really into it. He's not one of us. That's the kind of dispute this is. It's petty. It's narrow. It's political. So that's the issue at the center of this. And we can see in this scene how Jewish people in that segment of ancient society are getting all riled up. But imagine yourself as one of John's Gentile readers. You're off in Rome somewhere. You're sophisticated. See? All this narrow, stupid, religious bigotry just about hatred, it's not about love, it's not about compassion, it's not about knowledge or wisdom or any of those things. It's not about light and illumination. We are so outgrowing this. Jesus, why don't you just smack them all down, just tear it all down and, and blow this wide open? You've got very different perceptions of this scene going on in John chapter 9. Here's how it goes forward. The hearing starts... Um, verse 15, the Pharisees again asked him, the man born blind, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on on my eyes and I washed and I see. This is now um, many repetitions into uh, this man's day. He has told this story lots of times. Look, I told you. He put the mud on my eyes without asking permission. He sent me to the pool. I washed in the pool, and when I did, I came back and I could see. That's all I know. That's what happened. So now you've got the Klieg lights on this guy, and the cameras are rolling, and the hearing is in session, and it's on the record. And so he gives the same answer, and the Pharisees put a spin on it. That's what hearings are for, spin right? Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, referring to Jesus, because he does not keep the Sabbath. He did work on the Sabbath by our definitions, so he's not loyal to us. He's not loyal to God. He's not from God because he wouldn't do this if he were one of us. He would keep the Sabbath if he were one of us. It's very easy as outsiders to this world 
to look at it and say, how petty, how really silly that is. But the minute Facebook gets going about the national anthem and whether you should sit or stand or what you should do during it, all of a sudden we're right there. Because this kind of issue is a gut-level issue. It's emotional and it's reactive. And they're playing it and they're using it to try to divide people from Jesus uh, using this man. So they attempt that spin, but they don't pull it off. They don't succeed. Um, Verse 16 again. We see there's division in this story. Some of the Pharisees said this man is not from God, but others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? That's a pretty good question. If he's a sinner, if in fact he is breaking God's law, then how's come the power of God is working through him to heal this man of his physical blindness? If he's a sinner, you would think God would withdraw from him and not use him to heal people and show his power. So the Pharisees themselves are divided here. They've got spin that they're using to attack Jesus, but they can't quite make it stick because they haven't convinced everyone in their own party. So they bring the guy back, and they put more pressure on him. Verse 17, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? Give us your conclusion. Tell us who you think he is. And uh, we're going to take those words and we're going to do with your words whatever we think is most convenient for us. We all know how this works. This is a trap. And uh, so uh, they put pressure on this man to, to state who he thinks Jesus is. And he gives this answer. He is a prophet. At this point, the man is being fairly careful, cautious. He's not going to be nearly so cautious in a few minutes as we're going to see next week. But uh, at this point, he's giving an answer within the range of acceptable opinion. You go back to chapter 7, lots of people in Israel are saying, yeah, Jesus is a prophet, he's like one of the old guys, and he's doing the same kinds of things, and he's got... Uh, miracles to go with it, and uh, but there's no claim here yet that Jesus is the Messiah. So what do we have here? If we just pull back from this paragraph and look at what has happened, a miracle has happened in this person's life. He has been healed and freed from blindness. He got his first look at his parents that day. He got his first look at the temple that day. And though he has heard Jesus' voice and he's felt Jesus' fingers on his face, he hasn't even seen Jesus yet. What a day that would be. I mean, uh, I can't imagine. To be one of these people who was lame and suddenly you can stand up and walk or you're blind and suddenly you can see or you never heard a single sound in your life until Jesus opened your ears and you could hear. An amazing moment. 
we rejoice over those things. But in this day and age, in John chapter 9, they hold hearings about it. It's a problem because you're out of your box. And again, I find this a lot like today. People like their boxes. Their boxes are safe. Their identities are safe as long as I know where I fit and who my people are. I uh, wrote an article uh, that was published in the paper yesterday. Somebody told me this morning that they, it caused quite a stir in a, a place where he was at. It was an article that's, I believe, printed in the bulletin today, right? Uh, and um, so you can read that. Uh, but the, the article is about the politics of identity and the fact that uh, there are a lot of people making a lot of money and getting a lot of power and influence by telling us who we are. And uh, somebody told me this morning that there was quite an argument, apparently, last night, that um, we're supposed to know who we are. We're supposed to have those identities, those political identities, gender identity, racial identity, whatever it may be, economic, socioeconomic, demographic, all of those identities where we see ourselves as oppressed victims of the system. That is who we are, isn't it? Well, we know one thing. That's the boxes we're supposed to be in. And we're supposed to stay there. We're supposed to stay there racially. We're supposed to stay there in terms of gender identity. You're not supposed to question the new Gnosticism of gender identity that tells you the real you is inside and your body is in your way. And you're supposed to sacrifice your body to reach who you really are. You're not supposed to question that because we've got boxes for you. We've got labels. They're very sticky. You're not supposed to question your psychological diagnosis. You're not supposed to question any of these things because we have a box for you. But you're here for some other reason, aren't you? You're here because you're seeing something else. You're seeing something larger than the petty factional, and very convenient boxes that our media minders have us put in. You're seeing some glimmer of the glory of God, and you're wondering, is that real? Is it true? Can I have that? Can I reflect that glow of the glory of God and His radiance on my face because if I can I want that but you're also maybe in the place of saying I realize that messes up my life because if I'm going to follow Jesus that means I am not who they say I am anymore and that messes with a lot of stuff in my life so these are big issues. The hearing grinds down to a halt without a conclusion, and this is uh, what the, the politicians and media people do when they can't reach a conclusion. 
they just uh, start following rabbit trails and calling, calling more witnesses. They go on to what, the, what they always call a fishing expedition. So here's the state of play in verse 18 of John chapter 9. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So uh, let's pause here just one moment. The Gospel of John has been uh, mischaracterized as being anti-Semitic because it, you, he, John uses this phrase, the Jews, which centuries later became kind of code for that monolithic group of people who are in a conspiracy all around the world. You know the hatred of uh, the Jews and the bigotry against them. Uh, and uh, so what John is saying here is, is before all of that, he is referring to the people in charge, the political parties in this hearing, representing the nation. He's saying the hearing broke down. And in their positions, they couldn't reach the conclusion that they wanted to reach. They didn't believe he had been born blind. They wanted it to come to some other conclusion. The question is, what is that conclusion going to be? So, uh, they call more witnesses. Verse 18, they did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. So they take a new trail. We'll investigate this further. They go and get the guy's parents so that they can verify, were you in fact, is this your son, and was he born blind? Where's the joke here? What went wrong? Let's, let's figure this out because this isn't fitting the boxes. So they call the parents and ask them, is this your son, verse 19, who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? So basically, they are renewing the pressure here in a different way, and now the pressure is going on to the parents. And they're saying to them, one, is this your son? Can you prove he was born blind? And if so, tell us, how did he get his sight? The burden's on you to solve this problem. You see how completely ridiculous and cynical this is. By the way, a Gentile reading this scene would understand this totally. The cynicism, the manipulation, the pressure, because a sophisticated Gentile in the Roman Empire, that's where we all live, right? We're all playing this game and maneuvering for position, and trying to make ourselves look good so that the other guy is cast in a bad light. They get this. They understand exactly what's going on here. So um, they renew the pressure on the parents, and the pressure is significant, and the parents feel it. I would like you to put yourself in the position of these two parents for just a moment. Your son... The day he was born, you realize he can't see. Maybe it'll get better. And it doesn't get better. And it doesn't get better. And it just becomes clearer and clearer. My son, 
He's going to be a beggar for the rest of his life because that's the box that he belongs in. Imagine being that parent. And then, one day, your son comes running in without any assistance at all, and he can see, and he gets his first look at you. Can you imagine that? Same day, the neighbors knock on the door and say, you're being subpoenaed. Go to the hearing so that you can solve the problem of which box to put your son in. Imagine this. Friends, people are living this way today. They're living in fear, crouching around. What will people think of me if I say what's really going on in my head about who Jesus is? And what I really think I need to do with my life in following him. There are people in in exactly this position... I know this because I talk to them. And they share their experiences with me. Students sharing the experience of being put through training about their gender identities, having real questions about all of those issues, and having nowhere to go to get any neutral, non-ideological answers about the struggle in their heart and mind over their identity. This infuriates me. It is cynical. It is wrong. It's abusive. And so people are in exactly this position and very often they don't know what to do. These parents don't know what to do. They get under the lights with the cameras rolling On the record, they ask them the questions. Verse 20, his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Don't know. We don't want to be part of this problem. We don't want to be under these lights. We don't want to go on the record about this. This is above our pay grade. You guys work all this out about who Jesus is, what box he belongs in. You work it out with our son, what box he belongs in, and what label to put on him. Leave us out of it. Now, if you're the son, and your neighbors, and your friends, people who should be throwing a party right now, just got you a subpoena to a hearing like this, and then your parents back out on you. They won't back your story. And why won't they do it? Because they're afraid. Old fears. John tells us, and he tells his uh, Gentile readers why they were afraid. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Read there, the Jewish leaders For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. You know what that means? You're not one of us anymore. It's not just you can't worship in this building. It's you are not in our family. 
You are dead to us. You are gone. We want nothing more to do with you. We will not support you. We will not employ you. We will not talk to you. Get out. They're afraid of that. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. There are people sitting in this room right now who got a glimmer of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And they had to make a decision. Am I going to follow Christ even if everyone around me who I love says to me, get out of my life. I don't want anything more to do with you. People in this room right now have made that decision to follow Jesus Christ, even though that could be the cost. People in this room have worked through years of that kind of of trauma and difficulty in their relationships. And if you talk to them, they will tell you, the glory of God in Jesus Christ is worth it because he is the Savior and he takes care of me and I belong to him now. I just want to encourage you if you're feeling alone today, you're not alone. It just feels that way because we're all in our separate boxes. All you need to do is get out of your box and join everybody else who got out of their box, took the labels off, and came to places like this all over the valley, all over the country, and said, let's follow Jesus together. And will you help me get the glue off my forehead? (laughs) Sorry, I went from... Went to preaching there for a minute. Um, Okay. So his parents are afraid of the power of the rejection of the people around them. I once taught in a seminary in Malaysia um, a number of years ago. It was one of the great privileges of my life to meet with... um, predominantly uh, Malaysian Chinese, but uh, some Malay people who, some of them as young as 14, 15, and they were going to seminary because they wanted to do a good job teaching Sunday school. And um, one uh, young woman, she and uh, another woman uh, would would drive me to the seminary at breakneck speeds, by the way, <laughs> each morning when I was going and, and all the time weaving in and out of traffic and all of this stuff. She's telling me her story. Her mother attempted an abortion. She survived. She was born, obviously, grew up, heard the gospel, in Malaysia and from her family devoted to the worship of their ancestors. By the way, that's the ultimate, you're in or out. 
You're either in the family and worship the ancestors or you're out. You are excluded from who we are. She hears the gospel, follows Jesus Christ, knowing that her father will probably kick her out, which he did. She was cut off entirely from her family, but then, as Jesus does, he showed up in her father's life and started to go to work on him, put the mud on his eyes without asking permission. (laughs) And before long, before the man died, he had become a Christian and followed Christ and reconciled with his daughter. When I was in the chapel to speak to uh, all of these students, their scripture reading was from the gospel where it says, Jesus says, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. They were reading that because that was the life that they had actually lived. It was not just an idea. And I thought, you want me to teach you? How am I supposed to do that? You're already living the real Christian life. That's what these folks are facing, and they just don't know what to do. We're going to leave the story right there for this morning. Next week, we're going to pick it up where it leaves off at verse 24, and we're going to keep going because it's not done even yet. And you're going to see this man explode on national television. This is one of the great scenes of the Bible. You don't want to miss this. But for right now, I want us to ask some questions of evaluation of ourselves. If you are here because you have seen something of Jesus at work in your life, what have you seen? You heard something of his teaching. And that phrase, that verse, that truth connected with you. What was that? It connected with you for a reason. You caught a glimmer of the radiance of the glory of God there. What have you seen of Jesus in your life? Take inventory of that. Be specific about what you have experienced. Maybe all you're saying this morning is, all I've got is just the barest glimmer, the the hint that something like Jesus is out there. I need to know more. I want to see this then what do you need to see in your life? Where do you need to be healed? What cleansing do you need? What forgiveness? What exactly is it that is the struggle in your life that you need to lay before Jesus even right now in this moment? I'd like you to consider that question and then move on from there to ask a second question. Given that I have seen this much of Jesus, can I trust him for more? If I leave my box and I take the label off, if I follow him, can I trust him with more of my stuff? Can I trust him to start to direct my decisions? Can I trust him to forgive me of the even darker things that I know are down there? 
Can I trust him to heal me from the things that have been done to me that I can't even admit to myself right now? Ask yourself these questions. These are big questions. They are worth pondering and praying over. I'm not asking you right now to make a, an instant decision to uh, somehow overturn your whole life in one moment, though Jesus is capable of doing that. But I am asking you to consider these questions and put the glory of God at the center of your aspirations, that that radiance of the power of God be reflected in your life. If that is your prayer, pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, we ask you together that you would turn each one of us into an exhibition, a show of your power. Show us what healing is. There are people here this morning who need their bodies touched. Maybe not just because of a disease, maybe because of the physical effects of anxiety or the effects of medication. Whatever it may be, many here in this room have needs. We pray that you would give us a show of your power Display your glory in us. We need forgiveness. As we prayed earlier in this hour, we need cleansing from the things that we have thought, said, done, and from the things that we knew we were supposed to do and neglected to do. Lord, we need our spirits mended and changed, softened, and cleansed. We need stains removed. Show us your power. We want to become the people who display your glory, the light of your presence. And so we ask you, touch us today, right now. And as individuals cry out to you and about their specific needs. Lord, I pray that you would answer them in a powerful way, even right here in this room. And we will give you all the glory because you are worthy of it. And all God's people said, amen. This is uh, a moment where I'm going to pause. We're going to take some questions. If you need to leave, uh, this is a, a good moment to, to jet out. We understand that. But uh, if you're up for it, we'll uh, take some questions here. Again, you can text me at the number that's on the screen right behind me. Let's dive in here. Is it only the liberals and those other people, in scare quotes, who wear these societal labels and need to shed them to reflect God's glory. No. I have focused on um, some particular issues this morning on that side of the spectrum. But for many of us here in this room, we are defined 
by how we see ourselves politically and how we see ourselves uh, in, in many different ways. The racial issue cuts many different directions in our country. And it is very easy for us to def- be defined by being white, middle-class, professional, educated in a particular way, whatever it may be, there are any number of labels that we all have. And my contention this morning is they're all in the way, all of them. Um, And so if you're on the right of the political spectrum this morning, I want to encourage you to stop pointing the fingers at people on the other side about how they all claim to be victims and the system is against them. Those of us who are on the right side, the, the right wing side of the spectrum, if you want to call it that, the conservative side, whatever, you, whatever your label is, we say the same things. We're victims of the government. The government is against us. The system is rigged. And everything is corrupt. And we marinate in that kind of animosity and bitterness. And uh, part of what we need to do is to say, we are indeed free people and not oppressed. We are freed by the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can touch us. And that is who we are. And that is common ground with other people who are reaching the same conclusion from their very different experiences from ours. I think uh, we're being sold the same lie. It just depends on which faction you happen to be part of. The lie is you're oppressed, you're a victim, and everyone's taking advantage of you, and it's all their fault over there. Nonsense. Free societies were never built on that kind of delusional, self-pitying, pathetic nonsense. And I don't care whether it's left or right. It needs to end so that we can stand together and be the people of God. And I think it is the challenge of our time. And that's uh, why I'm bringing these messages. So, no, it is not one side of the spectrum or the other. It's all of it. Um, Here's a comment. Uh, blind man was a holy, a new man after being healed by Jesus. Even those who had formerly known him did not recognize him. Not only was he cleaned up, but he was also self-confident with an air of intellect. This is very true. You're going to see this next week. This guy is one sharp cookie, and it all starts to come out once you let him out of the box. Jesus healed far more than the man's eyesight. 
that is very important for us to realize. Jesus takes that mud, puts it on his face. He's addressing the man's whole soul through his body. That's a powerful thing. And uh, I think it is very important for us next week to see just what he does with this man when this man gets the boldness to speak up for who he really is. And it's an amazing transformation. It's emotional, it's psychological, and it's physical. So a very good comment. If I'm different or out of place or damaged or emotionally or physically handicapped, do I need to be healed first of figurative blindness before I can contribute to others? Or can God use me in or through my limitations to glorify him? Very good question. One of the things that uh, we believe here deeply is that God uses our limitations. We love children born with challenges, physically, emotionally, mentally. We love them. And we believe that God will use them to minister to us. It happens repeatedly in my life that I come across a young person who has tremendous challenges. And yet, when the Lord gets a hold of his life and he follows the Lord, she follows the Lord, those very limitations become the things that speak loudest about who God is. So in a day when we are aborting children because of their physical diagnoses in the womb. I think it is extremely important for us to say loudly, every life is an expression of the glory of God. It is good. The love that comes from all these lives is good. It is powerful. It is worth living. It glorifies God. And we love all of these people. So uh, to get back to this question, if the Lord wants to liberate us from a particular limitation, then that is going to glorify him. If he wants me to remain within my limitations, whatever those may be, that also will glorify him and the limitations themselves will speak louder than anything else. So what we're really saying is, this is about God. It is not about us. And when we trust him and follow him, he is good to us. And he will glorify his name.